0: tonight we're going to go back and we're going to grab the rest of this message we looked at a few weeks ago in Nehemiah chapter 9. This really is a, a perfect message that leads us right into the Lord's Supper tonight. It's vital to our lives, that we our walks with God, that we handle sin in a right manner. So let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to be we have about half a chapter left tonight. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to pick up where we left off last time. And that's mostly for my sake so I don't have to read those names again that I did last time. Um, my dad gets a kick out of listening to these messages and hearing me pronounce all those names. He texts me and tells me these things. So, Dad, when you're listening to this, there you go. Okay. Um, but uh, we're going to look at the second half of this idea of properly responding to sin. The uh, people of Israel have rebuilt the wall and now the work that was to be done on the wall, the focus has turned away from that because it's done and the work that lies ahead is on the people, that they need to be right with God. They need to walk with him and follow him with their hearts and it began with a proper response to God's word and it turned into this proper response to their sin. Have you ever made a mess out of something that was supposed to be a good thing? Maybe that new computer or your phone that was supposed to help solve all your problems and it kind of went haywire. Maybe it was a relationship that was supposed to be a good thing but it just kind of went off the rails. Maybe it was a position at work or just something else in life. It, you know, it, doesn't it seem that even the good things in life are not untouched by our sin, our ineptitude, and our foolishness? I mean, that... happens. The nation of Israel was no stranger to this either. When God brought his people into the promised land he did exactly what he said he would do. He told them that he would give them victory over their enemies, he would give them peace, he would give them a land flowing with milk and honey and that's exactly what he did. Yet one generation after the conquest of Canaan they began to stray and wander from God. Now God's people in Jerusalem are confessing their sins before God as they properly respond to their sin. And what we have seen here is that God's people must deal with sin God's way so that they may enjoy unbroken fellowship with him and see him do a mighty work in their lives. If we truly want to benefit from the, the complete and full blessing of God's uh, of, of a relationship with God in our lives, then it, it begins with this this. This point here. We have to deal with sin the way God tells us to deal with it. Sin is an inevitable thing in our world because of the fall of man. You can't get away from it. It's what we do with it that has a lot of bearing on our lives. And of course, initially, we have to deal with sin in God's way and come to him for salvation. But then after salvation, we still have to deal with sin because it hinders our relationship with God. I mean, think of it, I think of it this way. If your child does something malicious against you and acts in a way against you, uh, that person, that child does not cease to become your child. It doesn't mean you don't love them anymore, but it does hinder your relationship with them until that is made right. It's the same with, with God. If we're children of God and we belong to him through Jesus Christ, we don't lose our salvation. We don't lose our place in God's kingdom because of our sin, but we do hinder our relationship with him. And... God's people never ceased to be God's people. The, the Israelites were chosen by God, but they had wandered from God. And so let me just catch us up where we were last time. We, we looked, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, at the conviction over sin that had come into the lives of the Israelites. And, and we saw that there was a time to get right with the Lord. There was an emerging consciousness uh, of sin, corporate consciousness of sin, in the city of Jerusalem. This is a sign of, of revival, of, of, uh, of reformation that comes about when there is a, burge, a burgeoning consciousness of sin in a, in, a, in, a, in a large area. Maybe it's a, a nation or a, a section of a nation. And there's no revival if we're not willing to call out sin and address it. And so, when God uses His Word and His Spirit to convict a heart of sin, that feeling of conviction does not go away. We talked about how we know that's God's work because He's the one who's doing the convicting work, and it's not us driving for some emotional decision. God obviously had been hammering away at the hearts of His people. The people and their forefathers had sinned, and now they're admitting that before the Lord. And so they began to work through God's law, confessing their sin, which is another true mark of, of someone truly going right with God. You're, you're going through the word of God. It's not what man says, it's what God says. And so then it was a time to pray because prayer is a vital to a proper response to sin. As the people began to pray, we began to see a couple things. One, we see a consciousness of God's nature in verses five and six. They exalt the glory of God, ascribing praise to their sovereign Lord. They come before God in prayer, and they do so rightly. Coming before God rightly in prayer means that we are submitting ourselves to him above all else. It is the submission to God as as our Lord, as our ruler. And then they talk about, in this prayer, we see God's creative power. And we talked about how Genesis 1 and 2 which is, you know, this is part of what the Israelites had spent time looking at as they looked at the first five books of the Bible during this time of, of, of coming back to God, that, that these things that we read there about the creation should fill us with wonder of who God is as we witness his power, his might, and his creativity because it is here we're introduced to God and what he can do, and, and we see that the creation worships God, and so should we. And so as we have a proper right view of God, then we can properly deal with sin, And and we also understand that because we have a creator, we are accountable to him. We have an obligation to him. And so then the prayer turns to the largest section that we looked at, or we began to look at, is this contrast and confession. We see, first of all, several things about God. We see his goodness and Israel's unfaithfulness. The bulk of this prayer is a recounting of Israel's history, specifically of their experiences with the Lord. So we see his creation of a nation in verses 7 and 8, that he showed his love for his people, creating them. He delivered on his promises to Abraham. We talked about that. Then we looked at his deliverance of the nation in verses 9 through 12, how he heard the cries of his people when they were enslaved. He, He did not forget them, but he delivered them. And we talked about the pride of the Egyptians and how that was met with God's judgment And God dealt a crushing blow to Israel's enemy and led her with his constant presence. And then the last thing we looked at was in verses 13 through 15, God's precepts and his preservation of his people. God brought his people to Mount Sinai and he gave them the law that they may know how they should serve him. And God's justice and his goodness are highlighted by the giving of the law. We have a just God, a God who has expectations of his people. A God who upholds what is right and righteous. But we also see that he is a good God. He has not hidden himself from man, but openly revealed who he is and what he expects. And God then showed his goodness and care in providing for his people on their journey that he miraculously fed them with the manna and the quail. He, he gave them water from the impossible places such as that which was polluted or from the rock. And he then called for their progression into the promised land. As we got to the end of verse 15, this is the picture that that becomes crystal clear. God is worthy to be trusted, followed and obeyed. That's the picture from the history of Israel. He is worthy to be trusted, followed and obeyed. And so sin is then an obvious rebellion ...against a good and glorious God. It is so painfully obvious. And that is exactly the picture that's intended to be painting painted... ...as the next section opens in verses 16 through 21. We see the presuming on God's goodness. We pick up in verse 16 of Nehemiah chapter 9. "...but they, our fathers, acted proudly... ...hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments... They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness." The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor to the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So so here we see that the Israelites are presuming on the goodness of God. The pride of Egypt, which was a major point in the last section, that God broke Egypt because of its pride, really seemed to grab hold of the hearts of God's people. The people left Egypt, but Egypt never seemed to leave the people. And we see that they came to this place, it's not mentioned by name here, but the place that you read about in Numbers is Kadesh Barnea. They came to the place, that's on the precipice of the promised land, and there they failed God in ultimate fashion, for when they sent the spies into the promised land to see what it was like, they would not enter, but instead hardened their hearts to him and stiffened their necks against him, and not in the face of bad things, but in the face of a patient providing God." You read that section in Numbers chapter 14, and you see all the things that they looked, that they saw. And that's another message for another day. But you look at everything that the, the spies saw. Yeah, they saw the strong people, they saw these things, but they also saw the goodness of God. And they had the history of what God had done for them leading up to that point to draw on. But in the end, it was not that that they looked at. It was, it was the, the negative things. They focused on that and then sinned went against God. And we scratch our heads and we wonder about that, but sin makes a mess out of our thinking. It always does. It is plain as day that God was nothing but good to his people, yet they treated him with contempt and in their pride they thought they knew better. Do you know, I mean it says here that they longed to return to where? To bondage. They longed to return to Egypt they they at that at Kadesh Barnea said let us appoint another leader and go back and what they did is they called the good things of God evil and the evil things that God saved them from they called them good and they would face judgment for this but they would not be annihilated they would still god would still be their god and we not forsake them. God stands ready to receive all who come unto him. We have another recording here of something that happened earlier in the life of the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 20, when when Moses is there receiving the law of God, the people at the bottom of the mountain waiting for Moses to come back, they make this golden calf, and they, 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 they put it up, and they worship it as the God who delivered them from the Egyptians. This is what sets apart here our gracious God from us. Can we just get really, let's just be really honest for a minute, okay? And I don't say this lightly or sacrilegiously, but how many of you would be done with these fools at this point? I mean, look, you, you don't want to go in the promised land? Fine, go back to Egypt. You don't want to follow me? Okay, but does God do that? No. Now, really, what does God do? He gives them exactly what they want, by the way. They don't want to go to the promised land. They do wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That's what they want, and that's what they get. But he never stops loving them, and he never stops providing for them, and he never stops protecting them, even in the face of judgment. He instructed them in his ways. He sustained them physically. And though they wandered for 40 years as part of their punishment, as a generation died out, he went with them in that punishment and gave them what they needed. He he preserved what they had and gave them their daily bread. This is a merciful God. Though his goodness was presumed upon and though it was opposed, he continued to show his mercy. And then, when the time came, he led them into the land. The next section of this prayer talks about the conquest of Canaan. Look at verses 22 through 25. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of, king, uh, the, land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. At the end of their wanderings, well, during their wanderings, first, God gave his people victory. There were nations that would rise against God's people even as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and God fought for his people and gave them victory. And after showing his might and strength on nations outside the promised land, the people then moved forward, inward to the promised land. And God's power and might are seen here again, for he delivered these inhabitants and their goods up to his people They were subdued before the Lord. The enemies of Israel were defeated and all that was theirs became the possessions of God's people. So the promise that God made to Abraham held true. The conquest of Canaan was a success. Why? Because God was in it. Because God oversaw it and God went before his people. And what is it? what 's the phrase that 's always used to describe Canaan, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, and you read those last couple of verses we just read that held 's true too. I mean here they become they become the new owners of all of this stuff, and all of these the cisterns where the water would be held, the wells the the houses full of possessions they all of a sudden enjoy these glorious things here in verse twenty five and what we see is that they, they delighted themselves in the great goodness of God. The goodness of God brings the greatest delight in our lives. The goodness of God brings the greatest delight in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. When we meditate on who he is, when we follow who he is, when we, when we truly seek to be faithful to him, that's when we'll find the greatest joy in our hearts, in our lives. When we keep things in proper perspective and realize that all good comes from God, we can enjoy these things as they're meant to be enjoyed. You realize to to be right with God, you don't have to live detached from the world in the sense that we don't live, we don't become hermits. God has given us things on this life to enjoy, in this life to enjoy. Now, obviously, if those things are sinful, they're not from God. But God, God has created this wonderful world that we live in and in him we can enjoy it in a in a right way and so when I use the term world I'm not using it as the system of the world you understand I'm using it as the world we live in that we can enjoy the things that God has given us here in his goodness but God's people yet again did not stay faithful to him and in verses 26 to 31 we wrap this section up With what I call gone, but not forgotten. But after they had rest, I'm sorry, verse 26, that was verse 28. Verse 26 Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them. That you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly, did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them, and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. These paragraphs, they record the continual ups and downs of God's people in the land. You read the history of Israel, and it's like riding a roller coaster at Six Flags. You know, they're up here, and they're down here, and they're up, and they're down, and they're up, and they're down. It's just, it's, you know, sometimes they're upside down. And during the time of the Judges, which is the generation that arose after Joshua, God's people largely forsook God once again in their lives. They grew content in the land and they forsook the God who gave them the land. Do you know how awful it is when the creator is replaced with the creation? When the provider is replaced by the provision? These are great gifts. The things that God has given us are amazing and wonderful, but they are terrible gods. There's only one God. And he is the the only true and loving and God worthy to be followed. We do not worship his gifts, but him alone. But what did the people do? Because they were so consumed with the things that God had given them, and not with God who had given them, they killed God's prophets, the, his personal messengers to them, and they would not turn back to God. And so, because God, they would not turn back to God when he called for them to return, he delivered them into the hands of their oppressors. The goodness of the land could not be enjoyed because the people were fighting for their lives. And if you read the book of Judges, you, you see that. If you were here on Father's Day when I preached on um, Gideon, You see that in his life. He's hiding in a cave, threshing wheat. He's not enjoying what God had given him and what God had given the people because they live in disobedience to God. The commentator Warren Wiersbe said, God is willing to give his people many privileges, but he will not give them the privilege of sinning and having their own way. He he opposes sin. And when God's people do not give God his due, they will find nothing but heartache, hardship, and trouble. And yet again, during the time of the judges, God would listen to his people. And when they returned to him, he would deliver them as he promised he would. It was a vicious cycle. The book of Judges is just all around and around and around. But again, it highlights the mercy of God. And it is not unlike our own lives in the Lord. I mean, how many of us, we, we struggle with sin and we don't know what to do and we, we go deeper and deeper and deeper and then we return to God and we enjoy His presence. And we, this is exactly how God you know, has called me to live. And the next thing we know, we're off doing it again because we're just we feel up and down and upside down. And when we're far away from God, we cannot possibly enjoy the goodness of God. The times of Israel's kings we're not much different. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people clamor for a king, and under great warning, they got what they desired. Again, oftentimes, the greatest judgment that God can levy is give us exactly what we think we want. And even under the kings, the nation floundered to do right consistently. Consistently. Saul, the king Israel wanted, quickly went his own way. David, the greatest king that Israel ever had, gave into his passions and lusts. Solomon, the king who had it all, turned his heart on his own wants and desires. And as the kings went, so did the people. And finally, the son of Solomon split the nation of Israel into two parts. And things degraded rather quickly under these two nations. A northern kingdom called Israel, made up of ten tribes, never had a single godly king. But God continued to send prophets to preach the message, though many were not listening. You read, especially in 1 Kings, we read a guy named Elijah. He was sent to Israel, the northern kingdom. They never, people weren't listening, but he was still preaching. A southern kingdom, Judah, did write every so often. But still, God's prophets suffered in both countries, and the word of God during this time was disobeyed more often than not. And so, judgment came. We get down to verses 29 through 31, and this is where you have Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel, followed not too far behind by Babylon that comes in and wipes out the southern kingdom of Judah. And for 70 years, the people are in Babylon, but through it all, God's mercy prevailed. His people were not gone just in temporary abstention. The people would not hear the Lord. He would not listen to his word. So he spoke to them in a message they understood. Affliction. What a terrible thing if that's what it takes for God to get our attention. That God must afflict us so greatly that we finally soften our hearts to listen to Him. But by God's grace and mercy, He will do what it takes. And this is where the people pick up. They've returned from exile, they've seen God work. They recognize the sins they have committed, and so they're now throwing themselves on God's mercy once again, and they're seeking his forgiveness. And all of this communicates one thing. This is the response that God longs for his people to engage in. Why is it that God didn't just annihilate his people in judgment because he longed for them to return to him and have a relationship with him? That was the goal. That was the purpose of the trials. That was the purpose of the affliction, to bring his people back to himself. And now we hear their cry, and we see here a cry for forgiveness and help. In verses 32 through 37, we see their present distress. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty an awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly neither our kings nor our princes our priests nor our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies which with you with which you testified against them for they have not served you in their kingdom or in their many good or in the many good things that you have you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them nor do they turn from their wicked works here we are servants today in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. The prayer now turns to the matter at hand that the people, God's people, are still in current trouble. Everything in this prayer has been a picture of who God is. And now, this is the God whom they appeal to. He is great, he is mighty, he is an awesome God. Fills their lives with awe and wonder. He is faithful and merciful. He can save them from their trouble. And at the end of this section, we learn what that trouble is. Those last couple verses tell us, The people are slaves in their own land. Remember, the the nation of Israel, they're in Jerusalem, but they're not free. They're still under the rule of the Persian Empire. They owe the Persian Empire taxes and tribute. Therefore, they work in the good land that God gave them, but not for their own sake. They work the land that they may send back to the kingdom. They face trials and tribulations, and the people now confess it's not unjust that they face such trouble, because God is indeed just, and he has dealt faithfully with them through their sin and their returning. The people have dealt wickedly with God and thus suffered these things. The people have not served God in the land he gave them, therefore he gave them away in the past they did not turn away from from their wicked works therefore these things have happened and this is true confession of sin what is confession well we said it before it's saying the same thing about our sin that god says it's not well you know i can see how that might have been offensive or i can see how that might have been perceived no this is a true i mean just this is wrong This should not have happened. This is where we went wrong before God. The people are honest and open before God. They are honest about who he is. They are honest about what they have done. They are honest about why consequences have justly come. Honesty must preclude or or, or come before being right with God. This is a model for us in our own prayer. When we sin, how we deal with our sin is important. The first step is to own it, to confess it before God. It's not just, well, that's how I was raised, or it's just the way I am, or it's not really a big deal. It is a big deal. That's why you have to go back to the beginning of the prayer to to fully understand who God is and what he's done because a proper view of God informs a proper view of sin in my own life. It is a big deal to sin before a holy God. We must lay it out before him, asking him to help us view sin properly. And when the people do this, we see their second response, that it is a time to change. Look at verse 38. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. The people confess their sin, and now they seek to forsake it. That's the next step of getting right with God. It's not enough to leave it with, well, I said what I was supposed to say. It's what are we going to do with it then? I mean, we all know that the, the person in our lives, maybe you know, our kids or ourselves or someone that we've known throughout our life, that they say, you know, they do something wrong, they say sorry, and they go and do it again. And you're like, yeah, I don't really think that you're worried about that. You don't really understand the, the point here, that that's wrong. They will make a covenant with God to walk in his way. This is repentance from sin, not just saying it's wrong, but turning to what is right. That's how we deal with sin. And in this proper response to chastisement and judgment, this is the proper response to chastisement and judgment from the Lord. Because see, God never intends consequences for sin towards his own to be an ends to itself chastisement and punishment for sin are a means to an end. And what is the end? That we would know God, that we would return to him. And this, by the way, has practical ramifications in our own lives. As a parent, when I discipline my children, I never discipline my children as the end. Like, well, you've upset me, and so now here it is. I tell my kids, okay, one of them's here tonight. He can probably witness to this, okay? Okay. You can talk to him later. I'm not going to call him up on the stand or anything. But the, the question is always, why do we have consequences? So that we can learn that, that sin hurts God, that sin is wrong. If we don't have consequences for sin, we just go and do, right? Or if, if, if the consequences are just a guise that we may carry out our wrath and fury, then we're not communicating the love of God. Never discipline your kids in anger. Period. It's not healthy. We have to discipline in love. Now, can you be very stern in love? Absolutely you can. But God disciplines in love to draw people back to himself. And we see the response of God's people to these things. The end goal is restoration. God promised this was the goal in his response to Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. I'm going to read you this verse from 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land." We just had July 4th last week. That's a verse that's pretty popular around July 4th. I'm just going to tell you something. That verse was not written to America. That verse was written to Israel. And it was specifically part of the prayer at the, uh, as Solomon dedicated the temple. God said, when you sin, if you return to me, I will heal your land. And he did it time after time after time. And this is exactly the process they have followed. What's the process? They humble themselves. They pray and seek God's face. They turn from their wicked ways. This is the process. Now, are there things here that we need to apply to our own hearts and lives? Absolutely. Do we, as, a, as, as God's people, need to follow this? Yes. If, if a nation, in general, is going to be right with God, would they need to follow? Yes. But understand that this initial response is here, this initial application is here in the Scriptures. And this is exactly what God's people have done. They've humbled themselves before God, which is something against, that goes against our human nature. Um, you ever found that when you do something wrong, it's really hard sometimes to choke out those words, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? They says it's really easy just to go, hey, sorry, right? There's a difference. They, they, this was all, it goes against our pride, which is, by the way, something they struggled with throughout their history, we saw. They've prayed to the Lord. This is an admittance of dependence on another and not on themselves. They've sought God's face This is a radical change in the use of their time and their talents and their resources. They have turned from their wicked ways. When God brings to bear on our lives the ugliness of sin, we cannot help but seek his forgiveness and righteousness and will not rest until it has been found. That is true when we know that God is truly working in our hearts. And this is what the people have done here. And it's the same for God's people today If we want to enjoy the fullness of God in our lives, we must properly deal with our sin. And only in doing this can we be fully used of God to our fullest and greatest potential for him. God's people must deal with sin God's way so that they may enjoy unbroken fellowship with him and see him do a mighty work in their lives. Nothing is so great a relationship killer with God as sin. God hates sin. And so when we entertain sin in our lives, we will find it impossible to live at peace with God. This doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that God won't even intercede on our behalf, even if we do not know it. But it does mean that we cannot enjoy the blessing of walking with him, of basking in his presence. The presence of God is a wonderful thing to enjoy for the child of God. It is a gift. And through his Holy Spirit, God ministers to our hearts the truths of his word, draws us close to himself as we pray, and leads us in the way we should go to live life for his glory. And so we must first confess and repent of our sin and salvation to enjoy this relationship with God. We must recognize the holiness and justice of God and throw ourselves on his love and grace, seeking God's exchange of Christ's righteousness for our sinfulness. And only then can the doors of salvation be opened for us. But after salvation, the battle of sin continues. Our flesh seeks to pull us back into sin and trap us, making us ineffective for God. We need to continue to fight against sin with God's help. And there are sins that our flesh does not give up on so easily. Perhaps you've identified some of those in your own life. There are certain things that you wrestle with on a regular basis. And we need to run to God and find his help in these things. And we can. There is hope in him. There is hope for victory over these things in the power of God and in the word of God. That's the greatest truth. But sometimes there are things that we're not willing to give to God. There are things that that we harbor in our hearts that we hold on to that I call them the pet sins. We kind of trot it out every once in a while. We play with it. This is a fun little game, but it gets out of control because sin always does, and sin always hurts. What is that secret sin in our lives that God has put his finger on time and again that you won't deal with? Perhaps it's an addiction. It's a heart attitude. It's a habit. It's a character flaw that needs to change. And you've tried all kinds of solutions and steps and cover-ups, but you've never found victory. Where's the victory in God? Confessing this to the Lord, seeing the vile nature of sin before him and taking steps that he lays out to be right with him, forsaking that sin, running from it, that you may enjoy his presence and unbroken fellowship. You know what? It may require that we seek outside help, accountability, We're even giving up some things to stay away from that sin. Things that aren't necessarily wrong, but they're wrong for us because we just can't, we can't trust ourselves. And that's okay. It's always worth it. And we hear this, we hear some of this radical thing, we think, oh, I mean, I mean, that's really Old Testament, right? I mean, that was then, this is now. God's grace, I mean, that makes things different, right? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. That's pretty strong. Jesus is clear. Sin has to be taken out at the root. There is no way to beat around the bush. Humbleness and a tender, a tender heart is the way to enjoy the greatest blessing of God's fellowship. And tonight, in just a minute, we're going to gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, this is a vital thought. For in order to join in this ordinance and observe these things, you must first have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is not a means of grace. The Lord's Supper does not make you right with God. It is a remembrance of what Christ did for us in a proclamation of the gospel. And as Christians, it is possible that we harbor sins in our own lives that hinder our relationship with God. These sins may be very personal. It may be something between us and the Lord that only God knows about. It may be a sin that involves another person, whether in this church or in our family or, or in our community, that we have let go on too long. And we continue to nurse it. And Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we enter not into the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner. That we do not come before this table lightly. We need to take time to reflect on these things, making sure we are right with God as far as we know that our fellowship would not be hindered. And so in just uh, just a minute, Carrie's going to play for us a couple of stanzas of a hymn. And as she does, I, I, I want to give you that time to, to reflect before God, to ask him, is there any sin that you are harboring in your life? Things that, that He wants you to make right and you haven't done so. Now, if you've sought to make things right, maybe it involves another person, you've sought to make things right, you've done what God expects you to do and cannot be reconciled, that's not on you. What's on you is, is what God requires of you. And May I just say, I mean, I'm not here to tell you who can and can't participate. If you know the Lord is your Savior and you're professing to have a, a, a clear relationship with him, we invite you to partake of this. But I do caution you that we would think on these things, we meditate on these things, and we would partake with a pure heart.